Welcome back to CrimeFiction.fm, where we bring the authors of today's best books directly to you. I'm your host, Stephen Campbell, and I'm here with Jerry Westerson, the author of the highly entertaining, crisp and guest medieval mystery series, her latest. And the eighth book in the series is The Silence of Stones, and it's being released today. Sort of. <laughs> Jerry, can you explain that? Welcome. And can you explain the uh, my hesitancy on on clarifying the date for the release? Oh well, first, thanks for having me, Stephen. Um, let's see. The Silence of Stone is being released today in the United Kingdom, and this is a, a new thing because Crispin hasn't been released there uh, as as a book or even an ebook there before. So as I've been telling everybody, because Severn House is a, it, the publisher is a UK publisher, I, I've been telling everyone that finally Crispin is translated into English. So he gets his chance, <laughs> gets his chance there first before it's released in the United States on February 1st. Okay, and I know you're doing some sort of a release thing on Facebook, so I, I, you know, officially October 30th is the release date. It just seems a little weird knowing that it's it's not coming until February for those of us in the United States. But for those of us in the United States, you have seven other Crispin books. So let's get started by talking about Crispin in general. Why, you know, he's he's like, uh, well, I heard him described, or I read that the Boston Globe called him a medieval Sam Spade, a tough guy who operates according to his own moral compass and observes with detached humor. The book is pure fun. Also kind of sounds like Spencer in the Middle Ages. <laughs> <laughs> yes, any, any of those guys. Yeah. So tell us about Crispin. <laughs> well, he, he is a hard-boiled detective. I, I really wanted to do something different when I was developing the idea for this series. So I, I wanted more than your, your your brother Cadfells. You know, usually there were a lot of monks and nuns who were uh, the heroes, the protagonists of medieval mysteries. And I, I didn't want that. I wanted something different. I wanted a, uh, a lot of action and sort of adventure sort of things going on. I wanted a little romance thrown in. But I also wanted a sort of a different slant on the whole medieval mystery genre. So I went for the hard-boiled detective tropes. And that is uh, a man who is sort of a lone wolf. He's hard-drinking, hard-fighting, hard-talking, and a sucker for a dame in trouble. So <laughs> I, I developed this as, as those tropes. And... Um, and through reading Raymond Chandler and uh, and his uh, his detective Philip Marlowe, he styled him also as this white knight who ha- has his own code of honor by which he lives. And of course, Crispin is also a knight, a disgraced ex-knight, uh, but and he does live by his chivalric code, and that really um, tempers everything he does and all of his his dealings. So he has been brought down low, uh, living on the mean streets of 14th century London, eking by, and reinventing himself as the tracker, which is my take on a medieval detective. He gets hired by ordinary folk and nobility to find things, to uh, find lost people, lost objects, and inevitably stumbles into murder. And while he's doing this, he he always seems to be involved in some sort of religious relic 
or venerated object, and that sort of propels the story. So that's sort of the Maltese falcon, if we're going back to <laughs> Sam Spade here, of, of each book. And this, at least in my experience, this is pretty unique. And were, were you the least bit apprehensive about bringing out a, a detective series set in the 14th century? Well, no, because a medieval mystery is a sub subgenre, I guess, of, of historical mystery. So there have been other uh, medieval mysteries out there, and, and they're not all monks and nuns as, as, uh, as detectives. But um, this, this particular style, sort of a medieval noir, making it a little darker, a little grittier, um, was, was my own. And I, I liked sort of running with that whole idea of that hard-boiled guy. But keeping it all historically accurate, making sure that that uh, people who liked history were getting their meat, and people who liked a little bit of uh, mystery with their history were also getting <laughs> their meat. That's well put. And when the first book came out, and actually when most of the books have come out, you have been nominated for practically every award possible in in the mystery genre so at, at one point or another you've been nominated for everything so these books have been well received critically they've been well received by readers uh, the idea obviously uh is appealing it's appealing and uh yeah nominated nominated for just about everything but as i tell people i haven't won any of them yet so i'm still the susan lucci of mystery <laughs> well that's not so bad uh, everyone knows who she is that's right. Someday. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, he's an appealing guy. He's he's uh, every man wants to be him and all the women want to be with him. So, I mean, it's that kind of a character. He's a lot of fun to write. He, he is a conglomeration of lots of kinds of characters. Uh, of course, you're Sam Spade and um, and a little Mr. Darcy thrown in there and uh, and a little Errol Flynn because I like uh, a lot of that swashbuckling stuff. So, you know, my my interests uh, are eclectic and and my the way I grew up with lots of historical novels uh, surrounding me uh, and lots of old movies. So I have all of those sensibilities sort of coming at me from all directions and 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 sort of developed into this this one thing together. Uh, molded down into these this series of books. So um, again. Historically accurate, so don't be afraid. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The Silence of Stone, the books that's if you're listening in the UK, is, is coming out today. If not, we'll, we'll wait a few months in the U.S. But give us the story setup for The Silence of Stones. And I, I, I'm going to try so hard not to call this The Silence of the Lambs at any point during the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I have no, uh, no compunction to make it close to that title. It just... <laughs> worked out that way i have a whole list of uh medieval uh words and and uh word, word ideas to put together for titles and that was just one of them but anyway the silence of stones um concerns the stone of schoon the, the stone of destiny that's embedded in, underneath the coronation chair so crispin is is there with his young apprentice jack tucker at, at westminster um abbey and it's during a, a mass, and there's this huge explosion, and suddenly um, everyone, everyone is scattered, and we discover that 
the stone is gone. So this explosion was sort of a, uh, hiding the fact of this 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 robbery. Um, and Crispin, of course, has this this track record as a detective, but he happens to be there. He wants to help. And King Richard II, who has had a lot of troubles of his own, uh, he's uh, he's he's been having a bunch of uh, lords looking over his shoulders for the last few years, uh, keeping an eye on him. And he's just come off from a defeat in Scotland, so he just does not need this one last thing, this the stone to be missing out of the coronation chair, um, because this this he this, the stone represents. England's supremacy over Scotland, and when the stone is now missing, then that creates all kinds of problems for him. So he asks demands of Crispin to find it, and he has to find it in three days' time. And if he doesn't, what he does is he he grabs Jack Tucker and imprisons him, and he says, if you don't find this stone, I'm going to execute Jack Tucker for treason. So Crispin is on the run looking for... Scottish rebels and all sorts of other characters. I guess that's something that we don't get in modern era detective stories. There's not some king threatening to kill someone. There may be a king pin threatening to kill someone, but right. there's never a king. <laughs> well, right. I mean, you know, so you sort of take a little bit of the old tropes of the, you know, like your mob bosses and uh, and your angry lieutenant of the police force, and and you sort of use those characters. The, the sheriffs are always seem to be against Crispin. They always make trouble for him. Don't help him a lot. And uh, and the king kind of does stand in for a kingpin. I think that's a good analogy. Um, really. Uh, Forcing him because he, he he has no power. He's lost everything. He's lost everything but his his name, uh, and he's lost his title, his his lands as well. And so all he has is his name and his honor. So he does try to keep uh, fighting for that. And of course now he's got to save his his young apprentice, who is a wonderful helpmate and servant to him. So. Yeah, it's it's the what I like to call the the ticking sundial. He's got to do this. <laughs> he's got to do this now, or dire circumstances will happen. Oh, I love that. All right, you have used the phrase "historically accurate" a few times. I'm guessing that you're a bit of a history buff. Yes. <laughs> Tell us about that. How did you, how did you develop this interest and? How did how did your writing come out of that? Because you you you're an accomplished author, you could write about anything, but you you've chosen to write about this particular era. So, why the interest in this era? Well, I think it's the fault of my parents. They were both rabid Anglophiles, and so I was surrounded by the history and the books and the the, the textbooks were all there in our home and. Um, we had discussions at the dinner table about the British monarchy. I mean, I really. I knew. Oh yes, I mean all the, all the history. You know that, that was part of the discussion, and and you boy, you had to keep up. So <laughs> lots of reading, and uh, you know and it was fun. You know all, all that that stuff. We we had children's books. I have a children's uh, version of the Canterbury Tales that I grew up with, leaving out some of the racier stories, um, and it, it was just part of of life. And so naturally, when I'm I decided to to write. I was going to write historically, and uh, and you can't you can't write this stuff unless you you do like history because you're going to be spending a lot of time researching it. 
no matter how much you know, you're always researching more. There's always something that you have in each book that, that really needs to be pegged down. So there's always research involved. And, and, and the reason I emphasize historically accurate is because um, so many times uh, readers think they're getting something historical and what they're getting is historical fantasy. Game of Thrones is one. Mm-hmm. Well, Game of Thrones is wonderful, but it's it's not history. It's taking off from certain elements of history and then going into a fantasy world. Uh, but but people who like mystery with their history or any historical novels, um, they like to make sure that the history that they're reading is is true. They feel cheated if it's not. So they like, and and I like that too. I like to have history as the background. Sort of uh, the, the the real timeline is running through the whole series, and my fiction is like laundry that's hanging on that line, and it just sort of follows along with what's actually happening. And and some readers, uh, some writers think it's it's maybe harder to not change the history to fit their plot, but I think it's more challenging, but more interesting to to change your plot to fit the actual history. You find out. So many more little sidelines to take your plots to when you follow the real history. How do you select the historical feature of a of a given novel? Like in this case, it was this stone that was under the under the throne. How do how do you select that key element uh, for each book? It's what Alfred Hitchcock called the MacGuffin. <laughs> the, the thing that that uh, it's not really important. It's just it doesn't matter what it is, uh-huh. but it's the thing that propels the plot. And so I, I sort of use my relics and venerated objects in that way. The Stone of Schoon is not really a religious relic. It's a relic of the past, but it is a venerated object. Uh, so uh, I I chose I kind of chose that because I, I I don't like to always have a religious relic I like to have something else going on, but it's also the history because at this point we just Richard just came off of that battle that he lost in Scotland so I thought oh, okay Scottish let's let's do something Scottish <laughs> so um, in fact I I even have a character name MacGuffin in this just <laughs> as a little kind of joke there for everyone. Um, but so, and, and it's also kind of interesting to, to take readers, uh, to different aspects of the time period, because we're very concentrated on London, the English people there, but it's, it's nice to, to open them up and and say, oh, look, you know, this is also happening around this area. Uh, so don't forget there's people in Scotland and, and they have a stake in this and that. So it's just a different way to tell the story to really open up the 14th century in that particular time period. And, and when you're writing these books, this is the eighth book. We mentioned that a couple times. Um, what's the time span? And, and is it difficult to narrow history down to a, a time span of, say, a decade or a couple of decades? Is, is the information that you have access to accurate enough that you, you can be really, really comfortable that this happened during the time frame that Crispin was around, in, in theory, since it's a fictional thing? Yeah, I you know, people say, well, you're writing about the Middle Ages. Well, that, that's a thousand years. Uh, so <laughs> pick a day, pick a decade, you know. Um, uh, and I chose the 14th century under Richard II uh, 
probably mostly because of Jeffrey Chaucer. Uh, I've had this relationship with Jeffrey Chaucer for years now. <laughs> My husband is well aware of it, and uh, he accepts it. Um, and I really wanted to include him. He he is a character in the books occasionally. And um, just this time frame of English becoming an important aspect of, of everyday life. Prior to that, of course, the language of court was all French. This is right after William the Conqueror, of course, conquered England, kicked out all the Saxon nobles, put in place the Norman nobles, and so the lingua franca was was French. And it wasn't until about this period that the royalty are now speaking English. So so Richard II is in Middle English, everybody's speaking Middle English, but now it's English, and it's sort of the beginning of this whole idea of Englishness that is going to culminate with Henry VIII several centuries later. So I liked this this particular point. So I, but I picked this point because um, of all, well, there's conflict in all of the Middle Ages, but I like the particular uh, several couple of decades we're going to be going through here of of what happens in Richard II's reign, and I and I think that a series should also have a, a finite ending. I'm not going to be writing these forever. There there is a, a definite end book. So. Uh, I'm following the timeline of Richard II's reign, which will end in 1399. So, so I have a few books left. Okay, all right. Well, that's <laughs> I'm great. Skip, I'm going to skip a few years, maybe, but I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna, I have a definite ending. So, it's just this particular time frame of the things that happen in this in his reign that were very interesting to me. Jerry, where can readers find your books? Well, they can find them in bookstores. Uh, if they can't find them on the shelves, they can certainly order them. You can go to Amazon. You can go to um, – many of the books are also uh, uh, audiobooks, so you can go to Audible. But uh, anywhere books are sold. And how, I, this is an aside. This would normally be where we're wrapping up. But I love audiobooks, and I think – Something like what you write, it just would be so interesting to listen to as an audiobook. Have you heard any of them, and, and do you they like are, them? They are fabulous. Um, yes, the, the Michael Page does the has done the first six books in the series, and he's just wonderful. He do, you know the, he performs them. He doesn't mm-hmm. just read them; they're performed in different voices for each character. And in fact. Uh, when I write now, I'm hearing his Jack Tucker <laughs> in my head. So that's that's a that's a good uh, hat tip to him. The Cup of Blood, which is the prequel, has a different um, narrator, but he he performs it equally well. So I encourage everybody to. You know, audiobooks are wonderful to listen to when you're doing housework, when you're exercising, when you drive, when you have commutes, or you're going a long trip. Um, I love them. So it is is reading the book. It's, It's hearing the book. So, you know, if you have a book report... It's still reading the book. I, I'm, I'm with you. I love it, and I feel like I've read the book. And you're right. The, the performance aspect that a good narrator brings to a book is magical. If, if, if a, the right mix between the narrator and the work can be can be truly magical. So, it's a movie for your ears. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Jerry, what's the best place for people to keep up with you and your work? 
Well, you can always find me at jerrywesterson.com, J-E-R-I, Westerson, S-O-N.com. Um, from there, I, I, there's a video uh, of the, a book trailer of the series. There's book discussion guides for anybody who has book clubs. Uh, Crispin has his own blog. He hath a blog on, on my <laughs> website. And, uh, and you can reach me on Facebook from there because I do all kinds of stuff on Facebook all the time. I'm and always there. There's also an awesome picture of you in full body armor. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I really like my hands-on research. So, yes, I have been in armor and I've been on a horse with my lance and all kinds of great stuff. And Yeah, you can find some other pictures there as well. Well, this has been great fun. Thanks so much for being here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is Stephen Campbell for CrimeFiction.fm. You can find us on iTunes and on the web at www.CrimeFiction.fm. If you do stop by the site, please sign up for the email list. I send out an email each Friday with a summary of that week's interviews. It's the best way to keep up with what we're doing and to be sure you don't miss out on great new books like Silence of Stones from Jerry Westerson. Thanks for listening.